Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. In the Old Testament, this Advent, uh, we've been getting to know the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and today, Ezekiel. Now remember, if you've been with us through this series we're calling Table Read, you know that God's people, especially God's leaders, are meant to reflect God to the world. And so far, if you've been with us, you've realized that most of the kings of God's people are like a funhouse mirror. Distorting the true God to the watching world. But the prophets, as we have discovered, are a true mirror. Which is a thing, by the way. Just Google it. A true mirror. Did you know that some mirrors are not true? Well, it's, it's a thing. Uh, not all mirrors are created equally. But with the prophets, what we have consistently is a reflection of the real God. In contrast to the distortion. And this is good news during Advent. A season of longing. A season of waiting. A season of searching. I mean, if you are out there right now. And you are restless for the real God. If you're cynical about Christianity because it looks like a carnival funhouse, Ezekiel's for you. But first, let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth, would the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you? You are our rock. You are our Redeemer and Holy Spirit. Would these words not just give us information, but provide transformation? And would we, by your Holy Spirit, see Jesus in Ezekiel? And would he change us? And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Well, so I learned this week in my news feed that Oxford Dictionary declared their word of the year for 2022. Do you know what it is? Well, okay, I'll tell you. It's goblin mode. Some people knew this. Uh, Remember when everybody was, if you don't know what goblin mode is, you're not alone because I did not either. (laughs) But here, I'll I'll help you. Uh, Do you remember when everybody was like baking bread and learning new languages in response to the chaos outside? Well, there was a hashtag for that. It was called cottagecore. Okay? Yes, it was a thing. Well, according to The Guardian, this cottage core response to the outside chaos is over. And in 2022, that is the year we gave up. Enter goblin mode. <laughs> I actually think these words cottage core and goblin mode capture, I think, our two most basic and instinctual responses to chaos. If cottage core sort of pretends that everything is okay, When everything's burning outside, goblin mode just gives up. We just give up the farce. See, I think whenever we are confronted with profound disappointment in life, we usually respond in one of these two ways. I think we either press eject or we plug our ears. 
And I want you to think of Ezekiel in this way. See, when we're confronted with disappointment in life, we respond in one of these two ways. And God's people in Ezekiel's time are experiencing the chaos of exile. And the first verse of Ezekiel begins in a refugee camp, essentially. Next to the Cabal Canal in Babylon. And it's Ezekiel's 30th year. He is a priest in training. And the 30th year for priests in training is the ordination year. But God has different plans. He gives Ezekiel a vision of his glory. We'll talk about that. And then God says, eat this scroll. In other words, internalize my message. My unalterable words. Take them in and then speak them out to my disappointed, exiled people. In other words, Ezekiel was ordained by God to become a pastor to disappointed people. His church was a refugee camp. Parked next to a canal in Babylon. And this river is not a river of life. It's a river of death. It's a river of disappointment. It's a river of disillusionment. If you want a window into what life was like at Ezekiel's church, then just listen to Psalm 137, starting in verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. Verse 2, there on the trees, the poplars, we hung our hearts. This singing community, this worshiping community, put their guitars away. They had nothing to celebrate. Even more scary, they stopped worshiping altogether. They were disappointed with God. God had gone dark in their lives. See, close readers of Ezekiel point out that God's people basically responded in one of two ways. Some pressed eject. Other ways of life in the ancient Near East seemed more powerful. Other ways of life seemed more promising, less stressful. Many stayed in their pews, but they still pressed eject. They accused God of being unjust. So Ezekiel 33 verse 17 God's people in exile are accusing God of being bad, of being immoral. And isn't this true today? I think, as I think about it, the way that most of us face disappointment, even disappointment with God, disappointment with church, is by pressing eject in one of those two ways. Quietly in our pews. Or just by leaving. Others went to the second option, just plugging their ears. They went full-blown cottage mode, frankly. So chapter 13, verse 10 describes, and I'm quoting, evil prophets who deceive my people by saying all is peaceful when there is no peace at all. It's as if the people have built, he goes on, a flimsy wall. And these prophets, these false prophets, are trying to reinforce it by covering it with whitewash. And it's Ezekiel's calling to show God's people, I think, a different way. A different way than these two options. A way that leads to life. I think Ezekiel might say, pressing eject is appealing, but it ends in death. Friends, pressing 
eject ends in death. Plugging your ears, it looks appealing. I know the appeal, but again, this is a way to death. In the end, the whitewashed walls fall and they will crush you. There's only one life-giving response to the disaster that you are in. He might say, what is it? What is it? I'll offer one word. Pivot. Pivot. Don't press eject. Don't plug your ears. Pivot. Listen to these words in chapter 18, verse 30. Why should you die, O people of Israel? I don't want you to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back pivot and live there's only one path to life it's turning back it's pivoting don't pretend, don't press eject pivot and turn back to the Lord and live now what does this path look like I want to spend our morning exploring this path to life Well, with some inspiration from others I mapped it out on my notebook That right there, my friends, is the path to life. It looks like a dead end. It involves surrender. It involves dropping our defenses. It requires acceptance of divine judgment, even, against our sin. But this path and this path alone results in life. Every other path in life is a variation of this. It does all it can to avoid death. And it looks promising at times, other times not so much, and then it looks promising again, but death, by avoiding it, is where you end. Only this path ends in life. Now, what more can we say about this path? And I want Ezekiel to show us three things. This path to life is God-centered. This path to life is face down. And this path to life is bittersweet. I want to look at each in turn. Starting with the first one, the path to life is God-centered. So when you're trained in public speaking, some of you know this, they tell you to introduce the thing you want to say and then say the thing you want to say and then conclude with the thing you want to say. It's amazing how easy it is. Um, Well, the Lord has Ezekiel do this nearly 70 times. 70 times. Nearly 70 times we hear these words from Ezekiel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord. In other words, don't miss this. When God acts, when God acts, it has one ultimate overriding purpose. And that ultimate purpose is that we would know him. Friends, this is the final answer to every why question that you could ever come up with in life. And let's just ask two this morning. Why, for instance, does God judge? 
The right answer is that we will know He is the Lord. See, ultimately, sin is a distortion of true knowledge of God. Sin is a distortion. So Old Testament expert Donna Petter, she puts it this way. Sin is a threat against true knowledge of God. Remember, Israel is a kingdom of priests. If you're with us through Exodus, we learn this. And what do priests do? They're like theater ushers who help others find their seat so that they can sit down and see the glory of God. But what we see with generations of Israel is that instead of ushering people into the glorious theater of God, those around them and themselves, they are blocking the entrance and standing on the front of the stage and bringing in idols. And so when God judges his own people, Ezekiel reminds them twice that it brings him no pleasure. He doesn't relish judgment. As I learned this week, the reformers would say that this is his alien work. This is alien work. It's alien to him. But judgment has an overwhelming purpose that he would be accurately known as Lord of all. So chapter 7 verse 9 says it this way. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. And if you can believe it, God judges the surrounding nations for the same exact reason. So that if you have your Bibles open and you just scan chapters 25 through 32, these are oracles against the nations. Every single one of them ends with the same phrase, that we would know him. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one. There is no rival. And so, if we were to ask the question, why does God judge? The right answer is that we may know Him. Now, what if we asked another question? Why does God save? Same answer. Look at Ezekiel 36, 22. Give the people of Israel this message from the Sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I'm doing it, why? To protect my holy name, on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. See, the big problem is that God is being projected out into the world in a distorted way. Whether from the inside or the outside. And so everything that God does, from judgment to salvation, and everything in between, is to restore and maintain His reputation as a sovereign Lord, Yahweh. Chris Wright says, the gospel is good news first for God. And then it is good news for us. Years ago, I received a few emails from friends and family Saying, um, Joe, I think your Facebook profile got hacked, which is a terrifying moment, isn't it? Have you gotten that email before? It's a terrifying moment because you're like, suddenly your public reputation is in the hands of some hacker or some bot, you know? And that's, that's horrifying. And so what do you do? You change your password and then you make a big public message and you say, hey, everybody, sorry, my account was hacked. 
that isn't me. Well, that's essentially what God is doing through Ezekiel. His profile has been hacked. People are getting the wrong idea about God. And God is zealous to be known truly, accurately. And so what does this mean for you? I think it means that the path to life, again, is God-centered. It's God-centered. Everything, everything in the world, from his judgment to his salvation, has one ultimate purpose. That God would be known and that God would be cherished for who he is. And if that's true, if that's the ultimate purpose of the universe, that God would be known and loved and cherished and worshipped and glorified, if that is true, then the most loving thing that God can do is to make our hearts, which don't see that, doesn't accept that, to unlock our hearts to actually see that and to relax into that and to worship the Lord and to enjoy him being at the center. To not just bend our knee because we have to, but to bend our knee before the Lord because we want to, because He's beautiful. That is salvation in a nutshell. That God would free our hearts up so that we actually can assess beauty and see it in the Lord ultimately. And that idols, things that God made, good things, even the best things, do not inch out the Lord Himself. God-centered. Jesus does everything to break, to melt, and to reshape our heart to see God's glory as a central thing. God-centered. I think the path to life is also face down. In verse 28 of chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, take a look. Ezekiel says, this is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. When I saw it, I fell face down on the ground. Ezekiel gets to see God. And when he does, his only response, and maybe the only appropriate response, is to return to the ground from which he was made. He was literally floored. What floored him? Two things. First, he was floored by what I like to call God's godness. His godness. The experience of God was overwhelming. So if you take a look, four angelic creatures, each with four faces, human, lion, ox, eagle, looking in all four directions at all times, moving in all four directions at all times, with four wings, They're escorting a chariot with gyroscopic wheels and eyes on them. And sitting in this chariot is an enthroned figure that resembles a man. But this man is gleaming like amber as if he's on fire. Add lots of fire. Add some lightning. Add the sound of maybe a class 5 rapid right beside your eardrum. No wonder he falls face down. Whenever anybody in the Bible has a glimpse of God's glory, they fall face down. He's floored by his godness, his transcendence. 
But that's not all. Ezekiel is also forward by what I like to call God's goodness. So not just his godness, but his goodness. His vision is so spectacular and so, I mean, just look, just Google Ezekiel's vision and look at all the bad artwork throughout the ages of trying to come up with a visual representation of what Ezekiel writes down. It's really bad. Why? Because you can't really do it. And so we get so caught up in the image that we sort of miss the point of the vision. God is not just showing his godness to Ezekiel. He's showing Israel and Ezekiel his goodness. How so? Well, this is a king's chariot. This is a king's chariot that Ezekiel sees. The ancient equivalent of like a presidential motorcade. And what do you notice about this motorcade? Well, number one, its wheels are moving. Its wheels are moving. God isn't parked in Jerusalem as it burns. He doesn't have a police boot on his wheels. The Lord of Israel is the Lord of all. Not just the corner of the world, but the whole world. He made it. And his chariot, his chariot therefore, is not like a bumper car at a carnival, confined to a small limited space. No, the Lord is on the move. And notice in what direction. What direction? He's moving not away from his exiles, but where? Toward them. He's at the refugee camp. Next to the Kabbalah Canal. This floor is Ezekiel. This, I think, unique combination of God's, we'll say, godness and his goodness creates face-down worship. The Lord is Lord of all, but he is shockingly our Lord. And this is the two-ingredient recipe for a face-down life, a humble life. Friends, the path to life is a face-down life. Do you believe that you are most fully alive when you are closest to the ground? Some scholars actually think that Ezekiel went from a professional priest in training to a believer in this vision. They say the longest distance in the human body is from the head. The longest distance in the whole world, really, is the, is the distance between the heart, the head and the heart. This 12-inch Gap is an eternal gap. Well, only God's godness and goodness can bridge it. And he does for Ezekiel and he can for you. He can for you. And while the heavens may not open to us like it does for Ezekiel here, they have indeed opened to us in Christ, haven't they? In the incarnation in Christmas, the heavens have literally opened and see Jesus is himself. The perfect combination of God's godness and God's goodness together. He is the holiness of God, and yet he is also judged in our place on the cross. He is judge and judged for us. He is his godness and he is his goodness. Pay attention to the people in the gospels who are face down. Forget it. Those who do extravagant things like wash Jesus' dirty feet with her tears and her hair, they see both. And it's a face-down life. But it's a life abundant. And so the path of life is God-centered. It's also face-down. And then finally here, 
It is bitter sweet. So in chapter 2, verse 9, we read this. Then I looked and saw a hand reaching out to me and held a scroll, which he unrolled. And I saw that both sides were covered with funeral songs, words of sorrow, and pronouncements of doom. And the voice said to me, Son of man, it's Ezekiel, eat what I'm giving you. Eat this scroll. Then go and give its message to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. Fill your stomach with this, he said. And when I ate it, it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. So God's message is bitter. Funeral songs, words of sorrow, pronouncements of doom, and yet it tastes sweet. This is the strange path of life right here. The strange path to life is death and resurrection. It's bitter medicine, but it's healing medicine. God's way is bitter, but it is ultimately sweet. I want to take a look at both kind of as a way to understand maybe the outline even of Ezekiel's message. So first, the path to real life is bitter. Clearly, much of Ezekiel is bitter. So chapters 1 through 24 is largely oracles of judgment against Israel, God's own people. Donna Petter compares Ezekiel to a funeral director in these chapters. If you pay attention, Ezekiel only speaks when God gives him words. And he's silent otherwise. Absolutely silent. He's sitting in Shiva in funeral silence. The section of 1 through 24 actually even ends with the death of Ezekiel's dear wife. It's bitter. It's very bitter. And this means that we ourselves must mourn our sins. We must, like Ezekiel, remain speechless before God's word of judgment. We swallow, in other words, his true judgment without plugging our nose. We stop making justifications. We stop making what about isms when it comes to our sin. It's a bitter path, the path to life. But when we swallow this bitter pill of death, it will, like Ezekiel, taste sweet. How so? Well, on paper it is doom, on the tongue it is honey. And I see this dynamic at work all across Ezekiel, and I want to just land on one part in particular. It's really a two-part vision, and it bookends the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is given a vision of the temple. And there's part one and there's part two. Part one is chapters 8 through 11. And part two is how the book ends, chapters 40 through 48. The first one we could say is a sweet, I'm sorry, a bitter vision of the temple. And the second one we could say is a sweet vision of the temple rebuilt. One is corrupt and one is true. And so if you look at verse, I'm sorry, if you look at chapters 8 through 11, we see what God gives him. Ezekiel gets a vision of the corrupt temple. It's laced with idols, both outside the walls. So verse 5 of chapter 8. 
and within the walls, literally within the walls. It's laced with idols, like termites. And then in chapter 9, verse 8, this corrupt temple is under God's judgment. And then verse 22 of chapter 11, this corrupt temple is essentially forcing God out of his house. One scholar compares the departure of the Lord in chapter 11 and chapter 10 as like a bird who's reluctantly leaving his nest. Have you ever seen that happen? Flies here. And then it flies here, and then it flies here, and then it flies here, and then the saddest moment of all takes off. And that's what we see in chapter 11, verse 22. The glory of the Lord, 23, went up from the city and stopped above the mountain to the east. Here we are again, east of Eden. God has evacuated his house. And in this vision, we see death to the surrounding world. If the temple is supposed to be a water station to thirsty nations, the image we have here is a temple that's totally closed off to that vision, to that mission. It's like putting your cup to, like sometimes on the golf course, you put your cup to a Gatorade and it's just full of like mold and spiders. You know what I'm talking about? Sorry for that image. Uh, But that's what's going on here. This temple is meant to be a water station to a thirsty world, and instead what they have is totally, totally correct. So contrast this first image in in these chapters to how the book ends. First, chapters 40 through 48. Ezekiel sees a true and perfect temple Starting in chapter 40. A temple that pivots, I think, from the rubble of the first corrupt temple to architectural beauty. A temple that pivots from the fires of judgment in the first temple to one in which the fires are on, but it's it's in the altar at the center. It's true worship is happening. Sins are being forgiven. A temple without God's presence to a temple with God's forever presence. Some of my most favorite details in this book of Ezekiel are right here, where Ezekiel's last words, if you have your Bible, I want you to see what they are. You see it? The Lord is there. The Lord is there. When the Lord enters this temple... Ezekiel tells us that the east doors are locked behind him. So remember, he was on the east. He flew away like a scared bird. He wasn't scared, but he flew away like a bird. And the way that he re-entered his house is through the east doors. And it says that those doors are shut and shut forever. Why? God is re-entering his house and he's doing it for good. He's locked himself in to be near. And if this temple over here, this corrupt one, is closed off to the nations, this is a temple with a river that flows from the most holy place, the very center of God's heart, the very center of His presence, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper as it flows. Bringing life to the nations. John would remind us in Revelation. Friends, this path 
to life is ultimately a path to Jesus. See, when we accept his pronouncement of judgment for our sins, it is bitter. But it is sweet. Because when we accept his pronouncement of judgment for our sins, how do we do it? We do it by looking at the cross and seeing judgment our sins deserve on him. And when we sit at the foot of this cross, we are able to see the wound in his side. From which flows blood, but surprisingly, water also. And if you're like me, you've ever wondered, why on earth is this weird detail about water flowing from his side? Thank you, Ezekiel, for filling us in. The river of life flows from the very holy of holies, the heart of Jesus. You see, Ezekiel sees a future temple, but we see something even better, Jesus. The true temple, who, like the temple, is torn down in judgment for our sins, for the sins of God's people, but who, like the temple also, as Ezekiel saw, is raised to life to offer living waters, not just to us, but to all of the nations. It's deeper as it flows, friends. I wept when reading this chapter. After so much judgment, after so much oracles of doom, after so much funeral, to see new life flowing from the heart of God will not leave you unchanged. See, there's only one path to life. It's bitter, but it's sweet. It's death but it's resurrection. There's no other way. If we had time, we could look at chapter 11, where God promises a new heart, heart failure to a new heart, bitter, sweet. We could look at Ezekiel's vision of a gruesome mass grave without the dignity of burial, under God's curse in Old Testament terms, But God does two miracles. He gives them flesh. That just makes them corpses. The second miracle is he gives them breath. He breathes into them. New life. Death. Resurrection. Bitter. Sweet. Chapter 37, verse 12. This is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people. I will open your graves of exile. And cause you to rise again. Let's back up a bit. Death and resurrection. Which life are you living? Are you avoiding it? Can we all this morning see that the only path to life is resurrection? And the only path to resurrection is death. We admit our need. We allow judgment to fall and we stop hiding behind fig leaves. We stop hiding behind 
distraction. We stop hiding behind excuses and we simply drop our arms and we surrender and we say to the Lord who is center of the universe, the creator of all, the God who is bigger than we are, that we cannot make up, we say to him, uncle, we say to him, I surrender. And in that moment of surrender, we see Jesus at the cross who says, your judgment for your sins I put on myself so that you would have life and life abundant. Yes, so that you would share even in my resurrection. So that death does not have the final word in your life. So that death does not have the final say in your story. So that death does not have the final say even in, yes, this creation that I made. So that, yes, I will create a new city. I will create a new Jerusalem. And there is no need for a sun in this new Jerusalem. Why? Because my face is shining upon you. My face is shining upon you. And you have Jesus, the true temple. My presence among you. Friends, the path to life is the path to Jesus. So Lord, we come to you. We are grateful that Ezekiel saw you, Lord. We are grateful that in seeing you in Jesus, we have life. Wherever we are this morning, we ask that we would indeed come to you, Jesus. And what maybe that means accepting your judgment for our sin. And repenting and owning, owning our sin. Others of us need reminded of your forever presence, how you have entered your most holy place and locked the key, no longer leaving your place or your people. Wherever we are, we pray that we would cling to you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.